Andrew Whitaker here, Communications Director for Comparative Media Studies and Writing. Hi. Last night we hosted the New York Times' Emily Rube, but you already knew that because why else did you click on this episode, right? So instead I'll just mention that if you missed our Comparative Media Studies uh, grad students presenting their theses last week, several of them have let us post the recordings we made. You can check out our accounts on YouTube and SoundCloud, find them there, and learn that there's more to food porn than meets the... I don't really have a dignified way to end that sentence, but that is grad student Vicki Zemer's topic on how authority in texts about food has shifted from celebrity chefs to anyone who can plate a beautiful dish. And there's Claudia Lowe with an amazing thesis on the sometimes brutal work of live stream moderation. Ash Gadave is there talking about the use of social media during disease outbreaks. Kaylin Doyle-Myerskoff takes the cake for the CMSES thesis, looking at video games through affect theory. And hopefully we get to post the rest so that you can learn about things like newspapers in rural communities, about youth and privacy. And please, Aziria, let us post yours so everyone knows your title is Seizing the Memes of Production. Next week we're off, then back again on the 26th with one of our postdocs, Anna Katrine Weber, and her talk on the history of closed-circuit television. Get info on all of this stuff at cmsw.mit.edu. Till then. Professor in Comparative Media Studies, um, and I would like to introduce our speaker tonight, Emily Rube, who is a reporter for the New York Times. Uh, she's also um, where she writes and produces New York 101, a multimedia series that really is about infrastructure in New York. And I'm intrigued by it because it's about system, and I'm intrigued by her use of media as a system to get her storytelling apart. Emily is currently a Neiman Fellow. She's a recipient of uh, the Emmy, as well as the Knight Batten Award for Innovation in Journalism. And tonight we're here to talk about innovation in story form. We know that uh, newspaper readerships in general are declining a bit, especially take up among young people is not what it could be, perhaps ought to be. Um, and we know, on the other hand, that the media forms that young folks are using tend to be highly interactive. And there are a few pioneers out there pushing forward within legacy organizations. And the Times, the Guardian, uh, Die Zeit, uh, Digital, would be examples of newspapers that are kind of trying to find, experiment, explore new ways of doing it. Um, and Emily is one of those pioneers, one of those explorers. So we're here to hear about her work tonight. Canary. And a couple of things to say. One, uh, you might know the Hawk Cam. And behind me is the person that brought that to life back in 2011. But it's in kind of precarious shape now because of the state of flash. So the preservation of these innovations is a real issue. We've been looking at it in the Open Doc Lab um, a lot. It's a problem. And I, I hope we hear a little bit about that. What do we do with print has the great fortune of being stable. What do we do with some of these interactive environments where stability is not cannot be taken for granted? Um, we're also looking at a moment of a medium in transition, I'm fairly convinced. And so we're watching that process play out. I want to also point out that the Q&A will be off the record tonight. So your questions can be particularly sharp if you'd like them to be so. Great. Emily, welcome. Great. Thanks for having me. Um, so I am a reporter at the New York Times. I've been uh, at the company for 11 years. I started right after high school. That's a joke. That's a joke, 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 joke. Uh, so, but in that time, I've just seen a tremendous amount of change in the way that we tell stories, in the way that we reach our readers. So, you know, in the olden days, this this was our product, and we knew how to do it. The Times knew how to do it. We, you know, fired up the presses, we gassed up the trucks, sent them off, flung it at people's doorsteps, and and once it got there, and once it got to newsstands that we had done our job. Um, 1996, website appeared. Uh, and, and that created a lot of tension in, in the newsroom, um, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and then we have, in the 2000s, does anybody know? Does anyone know what this device is? <laughs> uh, things got a little bit more complicated in the 2000s, and now today we are swimming in media channels, WhatsApp and text and 
you know, phones and Alexa and, and so, you know, all of these ways um, that we, you know, we used to be able to just tell one story and then write it in the page and, and print it up and now uh, all of that has, has uh, that model has kind of exploded, so to speak. Um, so just a little bit about me. Um, I uh, got my start in journalism in Paris, um, and I worked for publications like Time Out in Paris, um, but I also dabbled in radio and television. I lived in Scotland for a while, worked at the BBC, um, and then also um, had more experience um, at the Financial Times in London, um, where I really you know, felt like I committed to newspapers um, and magazines. And so I felt like, you know, print was sort of my, my medium, but I also, you know, wasn't wedded to it and felt like, you know, there were, there were other avenues to explore, um, which I will talk about in a minute. But <clears throat> I was hired in 2006, and back then, you know, the building was, it's now the Yahoo building, um, but it was, um, 229 West 43rd Street was, you know, this big hulking building, there were beautiful brass doors, and, um, you know, I, I was ready to go to work there, but uh, actually, this is where I showed up to work. Uh, this is 507th Avenue, uh, which is where the website was. So the website, we were an electronic media company. Uh, we had a separate work contract, we had a separate newsroom, we had a separate org chart, we worked in separate systems, um, and we were down the street. So I, uh, you know, you, we would walk back and forth between, in, in Times Square, Times Square is named Times Square because of the New York Times. Um, but, uh, you know, we would sort of see other web people sort of walking back and forth in the rain to like go to meetings at the paper. So we were, you know, kind of treated like these, it was, we were on the JV team, okay? Um, but that also meant a, a lot of opportunities because a lot of print people were not really paying attention to what we were doing. Um, and so, you know, e e there were days, I mean, it, things had gotten better by the time I arrived, but there were, there were even editors that didn't want web people at their meetings because they didn't want to be scooped by the website. So that's, the, you know, this is, this is just a part of the history of the times. Obviously things are, are changing. But I started in travel um, and I was doing a lot of multimedia. Um, you know, again, as, as William pointed out, like uh, most of my audio slideshows, does, any, does anyone know what an audio slideshow is? That was like the coin of the realm back then and like, you know, before Mark Bittman was like a thing, I would lock him in a closet and like get good tape and do audio slideshows with him and Frank Bruni. Um, and, uh, you know, experimented with, you know, sort of new forms of storytelling, um, trying, to, trying to liven things up a little bit. So it was up to us really to think about, you know, when the print, you know, uh, editors had like a big package, it was up to us to kind of figure out how to translate that um, like the 53 places to go, um, but we also made up stuff, um, and I, you know, started experimenting with audience engagement. So this was the frugal traveler. You know, we sent him off with a GPS device. Um, this is, <laughs> I know it sounds totally ridiculous. What year is this? 2008 or nine? Um, and then you know, every night we would like upload his like data for the day, and we hacked together like this um, Google Map. Um, and we would, you know, he would alter his route depending on where readers wanted him to go. And so this is, you know, this is this new form of this two-way interaction where we're actually, you know, listening to our readers and trying to, you know, incorporate, you know, what, what they had to say and, 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 you know, let them into our reporting. Um, so we also redesigned the, um, this is all dead now, by the way. This totally doesn't exist anywhere. But we redesigned the travel website, and this was also another instance where we, you know, we, um, you know, there's a separation between church and state, editorial and business do not mix at the times. But this was an instance where we were really trying to build out these 
destination pages. Um, and we partnered, you know, with Expedia to put on a, you know, like a, a booking module. And we were also building out these pages to engage readers uh, and ask for their insights about where to go, where to, you know, stay, what to eat. Um, so, but that was a, that caused a tremendous amount of tension in the newsroom because it was one of the first projects of its kind where we were actually really trying to monetize <laughs> our content. Um, so, in 2008, um, I joined the Metro Desk. D does anyone know what City Room is? So, this is the heyday of blogs, okay? The blogs at one point, like the Times had about 80 of them. And City Room was one of the, I would say, one of the highest, um, it had one of the highest metabolisms. We were like producing 20 items a day. Um, and we, you know, had a, a small, um, team. Um, I was the I was the producer. We had you know a few reporters and editors, and you know we were really experimenting. Our our you know our mission really was to um, promote civic engagement and to you know really try to um, so th there there was a mission statement statement that said to enhance and supplement metro articles from the Times offer non-news features about the history and civic culture of the city and encourage reader comments and discussion. So that was our mission statement, and we went to town. Um, and the great thing about our little world was that, uh, kind of like when I was on travel, you know, people were paying attention to what we were doing, but there wasn't a lot of bureaucracy around, you know, we didn't, we didn't have to go very far to just get permission to do things. So we, we had a lot of latitude, but, which was incredible because we were able to, you know, do th things that were not very Timesian, right? Um, because the Times has a very, you know, we have, we have a reputation and uh, uh, to, you know, to uphold certain standards and we do want to do that. But I think that what City Room did was, uh, in, you know, offer a little bit more fun. You know, so, and we did a lot of um, series. My job was to really create series and, and regular features that would draw readers back to the site and to encourage their participation and create that habit. Um, like every week I would, you know, ask somebody like a window washer or a, you know, a train operator or a politician to come in and, and ask questions. Um, and another part of my job was to, you know, really help print editors rethink what a traditional story was, right? Because we editors, print editors, know how to write that 800-word story, right? Um, you know, it's like, and, and does anyone know what a voices piece is? So in like, you know, newspaper parlance, you know, the shorthand is like, yeah, we need a voices piece on that, uh, which is literally a reporter going out and, and, you know, taking the temperature of people about, you know, opinions about a, you know, a new legislation or, a, um, you know, new, a, a politician or an event. And so this was actually a real voices piece. And these were, um, you know, we were able to sort of create this tableau of voices, literally, but you could actually connect with the emotion in people's voices um, and also sort of spatially, you know, see where people are. Um, and you know, it 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 just um, you know it was it was offering a new way to present stories um, to to our readers. Now, here is one of my favorite projects. So I have been spending a lot of time, or have always spent a lot of time, thinking about you know what I could do to engage readers, right? What um, and, and how do I reach audiences? Now, I am not a bird watcher, but my mom is, and my, I would go on long walks with my brother. And I realized um, that bird watchers are very smart. Um, they love data. They're very competitive. Um, they love to share. Um, and there are a lot of them. Um, like they're, you know, I think, you know, it, bird watching might have even surpassed gardening as like, you know, America's like most 
um, you know, number one pastime in America or a hobby. So, you know, and, and also if, if you look at the Venn diagram of the Times Reader and the Bird Watcher, there is a lot of overlap. So I started going around the building saying, hey everybody, I'm doing this thing called Bird Week, uh, like Shark Week, but for birds. Um, and I, you know, I wasn't really getting the reaction that I was hoping for. Uh, I had a lot of editors who said, two in particular, who said, you really should not be wasting your time on Bird Week. And I said, thanks. Okay, great. So I went ahead and I, I uh, called up the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. I called up New York City Audubon. Um, I found you know, people within the building who were excited about birds. Um, uh, my friend David Dunlap, who I'll tell you about in a minute. Um, and I went ahead and just started calling meetings, putting meetings on people's calendars about Bird Week. Um, I commissioned um, Mike Tyson to uh, write a defense of the pigeon. He said, make a pigeon your friend and you will never be lonely. <laughs> it was beautiful. It is a beautiful essay. Um, you know, went on WNYC and we, you know, started, we partnered with this company called Mobile Commons and we started, you know, asking people where they watch, go bird watching. Um, and then my friend David Dunlap um, tipped me off. So this is David Dunlap is you know, horned rim glasses. He wears a bow tie every day to work. You know, I sat next to him. You know, you know he's probably he's in his sixties. Um, very seasoned reporter. And I said, David, I said nobody is interested in Bird Week. And he said, he said to me, he you know over his horned rim glasses, he said, fuck them. And then he told me about this pair of red-tailed hawks that were nesting outside of NYU's president's office um, in Washington Square Park. Um, that's, I think that's Bobby on the left and Violet on the right. So there had been NYU professors who had already named the hawks. So I ran down to the office. Of course, I called them first. Um, and I think they rued the day that they let me in their office. But I went down there, and this is actually the second iteration of the Hawk Cam. Because the first one was really, I knew we had a live stream account that nobody was really using. And I rummaged around in the supply closet for a, um, like a Logitech, you know, one of those like crappy little webcams. And I taped it to the curtains and then just plugged it into the live stream account and then just started broadcasting. Um, and, you know, I was like, I sent a message to Andy Newman, who was the bureau chief. I was like, is this even cool? Like, you know, doesn't, you know, like, and he was like, oh my God, like, yeah, we have to like go, we have to go live. So as soon as, you know, I started, you know, broadcasting this thing, I realized I had created a lot of problems for myself uh, because this was a 24 hour a day, seven day a week stream, okay? Um, and, you know, I, we couldn't interview our subjects, um, you know, like, but, but the bigger problem was that nothing was happening. So there was this bird, you know, this hawk sitting on the nest. Every once in a while she would get up and, you know, turn the eggs around and I was starting to take a lot of heat, you know, from my editors. Like, okay, but like, what's, what's the point of this whole thing? Um, Bill Keller, who was former executive editor of the New York Times, um, who was then an opinion writer, um, mentioned it um, in reference to a Yule log. Um, and so, you know, so I was like, all right, we got to, we got to, we got to do something about this. So, you know, you know, we hosted the Q&As, you know, with ornithologists and, and um, this woman, you know, Maria Wynn, who had chronicled this other famous red-tailed hawk. We did, um, you know, shoe leather reporting. But here was the cool part was, so this is the old live stream. This is, there's nobody in the nest right there. But there was a chat room that was bananas. Um, there were people named, like, Pip Chick, Pond of, and these became our sources. 
because we started, you know, they were the ones who started tipping us off, um, you know, to events that were happening in the nest. Um, then there was a, um, a raptor expert from Ohio, John Blakeman, who started, you know, responding to some of these questions because people were like, why, you know, why, are, you know, is the, you know, why doesn't, you know, the father hawk ever sleep on the nest, you know, like, and so, you know, people were starting to criticize, you know, sort of like their, you know, bedroom habits. And so we had these, you know, another uh, urban hawk expert chime in and, you know, reassure people that's like normal behavior. So it was really, you know, these people who were making this, this story. Um, they started, and they started making it their own. Um, so they sent us photos <laughs> of their animals. And of course, because, you know, the key to reader engagement is to rewarding, is to reward your readers, right? You can't, if you ask them to submit something, um, you want to acknowledge, you know, their contribution. So we made a whole slideshow of pets watching the hawk cam. Um, and then, and then things just, you know, blossomed off of the site. You know, there, this was something I just couldn't control. They were making Twitter accounts. Um, there was this woman, um, who was housebound in North Carolina who, you know, was so inspired by this and was connecting with these other, you know, readers, um, you know, this, it, you know, she wrote all these letters and, and wrote and made these beautiful illustrations. Um, this was, you know, helping people transcend their everyday lives. Um, and, 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 and also, but they were making it their own. I mean, this is like the definition of viral content, right? It's like you, like, it, these are memes, you know? This is like, this is people are connecting with the content, they're putting their own little spin on it, and then they're sending it back out into the internet. Um, so of course there was sort of the happy ending, and this is like a tiny little baby hawk, and baby hawks are very cute, um, you know, and, but it was, you know, it ended up being this phenomenon. Um, in the first season, it ran for four seasons. The first season, I think people spent 150 million minutes watching this, um, an average of 16 minutes a person. Um, so, you know, some might say that that, the, you know, that was, uh, those were hours of lost productivity, um, but I prefer to call that engagement. Um, you know, it was, there were teachers who were watching with their students, there were ornithologists who were, you know, observing these birds up close in this urban environment, you know, that they wouldn't normally get to see because normally, you know, usually when they w encounter them, they're under duress or they're hurt or something. And so this was a chance for them to uh, study these birds, you know, while they were going about their daily business. Um, and it also just, you know, inspired people to be in awe of their environment. And then they started to connect with each other in real life. So, so if you can see, they've got their name tags on. So these are their chat room handles. So, you know, so it was, you know, just the, you know, the, there's so many lessons of the Hawk Cam, you know, about believing in your own ideas and, and just going with, with, you know, your gut instinct and, and not listening to naysayers. Um, but also that this was the low, the, it, the technology was, was so simple that it really, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, creative and immersive storytelling, you know, you don't have to have expensive gear. Um, and, you know, it's really about creating content that is, that readers connect to um, emotionally. Um, so, you know, so we created this, you know, sort of teed up this story and then readers sort of made it their own experience. So there are pitfalls, however, um, of reader-generated content. So readers are a terrific resource. However, there are, they're, they're not always perfect. So this is in 2013. It was, we were covering the mayor's race. And, you know, I always like, I, again, you know, instead of covering, you know, the, you know, the panel discussions or the debates, I wanted to um, create something that 
celebrated or recognized that you know the people every day who are um, you know little heroes on their block and their community um, as a way to to you know engage with New Yorkers, but also um, ask readers you know who who is meaningful to you. So we put out this call. Uh, and you know we got 200 very thoughtful responses, and went, we went through all of them. Most of the responses, however, were of people nominating their mom, which is nice. But you know, everyone's not everyone's mom is you know a hero. Um, this guy uh, nominated himself 20 times, uh, and so. You know, there. While readers are, are a really great resource, you know, it really, you, you know, you still have to, to. We still had to do a lot of our own reporting to to vet the entries, but also to make this to make this um, project a, a success. So we did, you know, the old oldie timey print um, presentation, but then we also created these little video vignettes, and I worked with two incredible photographers. To um, to really just capture the essence of, of some of these characters, and this is this is Gina Sakala. Um, she has been sitting outside of her stoop on Spring Street um, since John Gotti, you know, wandered the neighborhood. Does anyone, do we know who John Gotti is? Mob, mobster guy who would like, you know, you know, give the kids ice cream and stuff like that. So you know, and she's she's a, a relic of this of this. Um, oh, I was born and raised Can in this building, eighty-two years ago. I'm sitting outside about sixty years with me and my family and friends of ours. Everybody passes. Hello, Gina. Good morning, Gina. No, I put him right in the jar now. That's Edna. Edna's my best friend. We're all together. The comptroller. We've always been together. So the point the point of that is that they're, you know, experimenting with the um, audio and video, and you can really, you know, you can read about Gina, and I can I can quote what she says on the page, but she's someone you really want to hear from. Um, so another project um, that we that I worked on was every every couple of years the Times, you know. And in many news organizations, you know, talk about the noise in the city um, and how it is a constant problem. Um, the challenge uh, is making something like this visual. Um, you know, we we you know when we we tried a, a several tactics to try and sort of connect readers to this invisible force, right? So we. We rented a dosimeter, um, which measures um, decibel levels, and you know, created um, these little noise diaries where we followed around you know a, a handful of characters just to show the level of noise exposure that they received every day. Um, but and that was it was interesting, but it was not like a, a big success. Um, this, on the other hand, was. Much more powerful. So, in when I'm thinking about multimedia, um, we like to use, I like to think about it as like zigging and zagging, right? You've got your print piece that is like it's going to do the due diligence of like it's really loud in New York City, and here are the experts who are going to tell you that, um, and then have the multimedia do something completely different. So. For this, we just turned the idea on its head and asked people, where do you find peace and quiet in New York City? And worked with a developer um, to map a lot of these submissions. So we got about 800 submissions. And then um, I went out with a photographer and, um, and, an, and an audio recorder. And we, as a, again, rewarding readers, um, we decided to create these audiovisual postcards, like a little, like a moment of zen. Um, you know, so trying to create sort of this immersive experience where you know, if you're at your, you know, desk at lunch, you know, sit back, put on your, put on your headphones, and and you can't you can't hear it, but 
this is, there's like birds chirping. And, you know, we're at this beautiful, you know, garden in, um, in Queen, or in, yeah, in, in um, Staten Island. We went on the Staten Island Ferry. And so again, we were trying to create this immersive experience, but working with readers and also rewarding them, again, for their contributions by adding, you know, a pull quote and creating this, you know, this display. Um, so it was, it was also an, a really fun project to report because we, I, for like four days, I just drove all around Manhattan um, with an audio recorder and just went into some of the most incredible, beautiful places. Um, so my latest project, New York 101, um, is, as William said, it's about infrastructure. But you know, as a, you know, as journalists, you know, I feel a strong, as a journalist, I feel a strong duty to educate. Um, and so a big part of the series is, is making people more aware of their surroundings, and and um, but also. Um, creating ways into difficult um, and complex systems. That's the hardest part about infrastructure is that it's everywhere um, and it is really hard to find a way in um, because it, it's just hard to know where to start. Um, and so, you know, I worked with a, um, an editor, Mike Luo, who's now at the New Yorker, but you know, he was—it was his idea to say, you know, to you know, to cover infrastructure. But it's like, okay, well, but what does that mean? Um, and so, as you'll see, I, you know, it kind of went all over the place. And how I was trying to establish this beat, um, you know, but my goal ultimately was like making infrastructure talk. Um, so here was one of the first. Um, I worked with Delta, so airports and airlines are amazing sources of data. Um, they because everything is recorded and like uh, you know, so there's a lot of if you're data nerds, so many cool data sets in there. Um, but I worked with them to you know help break down the process of like what happens when a plane touches down at JFK, one of the busiest airports you know in North America from the time it, it touches down to the time it takes off. Because Delta doesn't make any money when the planes are on the ground. So they know every like down to the second where their plane is and where their mechanics are. And so I you know, worked with them to you know, detail the um, number of pounds of uh, jet fuel that were loaded into the plane, how many cans of tomato juice went into it. And so you know, taking sort of this behind the scenes look at, at you know what goes on um, at airports, and I, I don't have it here. But and I used gifts because who doesn't like a gif? Um, I also, you know, uh, you know, wrote about people. You know, a big part of the series is also highlighting the people who were, you know, work behind the scenes. This is Sal Magadino. He's like a former major crimes detective at the NYPD, um, and he is standing on this giant book sorter. Okay, so he runs this, he runs this um, department called Book Ops, like Book Operations, Book Ops. So he works with like, you know, former military guys um, who are like logistics experts from like, you know, Iraq and like, you know, have like deployed platoons. And now they're like, they got this, again, they know like where all their books are. And they were like, if a patron has an urgent request, we could reroute that truck. So I, you know, they took me behind the scenes to, you know, their um, their headquarters, and you know, showed me all of their the maps and you know, like their service, you know, routes and everything. And so I worked with them. Again, I knew that they had this great data set. I, I wrote a story about the, you know, about Sal and this book sorting competition um, that they have every year with the Seattle Public Library. Um, so there was like a news peg there, um, but uh, but w the more fun part was actually tracking a book 
um, I checked out Breakfast at Tiffany's and like send it to Staten Island. Um, and we were, they were able, so, th so they knew that I was doing this and they were able to give me the actual timestamps of like when and where it like went through you know, the system and when it went on that book sorter that, that we just saw, um, you know, as a way to actually, you know, show people like when you check out your book, that book, and there have been a lot of people who have like made that, you know, made that happen. Um, I also wrote about um, an archaeologist for hire. Um, and I, uh, but instead of, uh, I, I wrote about her work, but I also, um, as a sidebar, I thought it would be cool um, to do a, uh, a, a deep dive of one building um, that has sort of been at the crossroads of, of cultural, political change, you know, for, for centuries, right? Beginning with, like, the Bull's Head Tavern where George Washington, you know, rallied his troops, and it was like this... German Beer Hall, it was a Yiddish vaudeville theater. So, you know, tracing the evolution and working with archivists at um, New York Times has an amazing archivist, Jeff Roth, who is a, an archiving god. Those are not my words. Somebody else called him an archiving god. Um, and tracked down, you know, old building records. I worked with the munici municipal archives to, to really, you know, sort of take readers through the history of New York City through this one building. Um, this was uh, the, a breakthrough for the series. Um, and it was, you know, it was timely because uh, Flint, uh, there were um, issues, you know, people in, in Flint, Michigan were, you know, drinking out of bottled water. They were, you know, bathing in bottled water at, because the city had switched the source of their water and, and there were, they hadn't adequately tested it. So I wanted to write something that wasn't alarmist. Um, and I also wanted to write something that was going to last beyond the headlines and have some staying power because, you know, there's a, that's something that, you know, our news organization is, is getting better at. But, you know, the, there is like an impulse to like write that day's story and just to get it in the paper, right? Um, whereas this, you know, I wanted it to be, you know, like an investigation, but a contextual invest investigation that would help people sort of think and, and perhaps even appreciate the work um, that goes into delivering their water every day. Um, so, you know, it, you know, I, I uh, went through a lot of boring reports. I also um, did, did a Snapchat story. Does anyone use Snapchat here? Oh, I was going to say Snapchat. <laughs> I love it. So I used Snapchat, um, you know, and I went, you know, to the Catskills and traced, you know, the water's journey, you know, all the way to a tap in, you know, where I literally, you know, turned on a tap in, in, um, in Manhattan. Um, and it was, you know, it was a way to reach another audience, but it was also, it informed my reporting. Um, and so I, you know, had at that point was able to sort of break down sort of this is my own these little um, drawings I was able to sort of create sort of um, a, a not a mock-up but just some kind of proof of concept that I brought to a designer um, and you know it turns out his very very talented designer Matt Ruby and it turns out that he had this idea or had had this idea of creating a new story format that wasn't a vertical scroll, that was horizontal, um, and that readers could flip through. Um, and so, you know, we worked together in a Google Doc, um, you know, which is, for the sake of transparency, I mean, a lot of reporters are resistant to that idea because, you know, you're showing somebody your raw copy. Um, and so there's, you know, people get kind of nervous about that, but I just sort of threw it all in there, and my first draft was about 4,000 words, and then he told me, if we do it this way, I each panel would have to be about 200 to 400 words. So I, that was the real work, 
was really narrowing it down and really refining it and, and um, you know, simplifying it, but without losing accuracy. And I think that in the end, it was, it was really powerful because it had fewer words. Um, and so um, you know, that story just gained a lot of attention because it really made people think differently, um, or it presented a new option um, for, even for editors, right, who are, who are sort of storyboarding some of their, some of their, um, you know, ideas. Um, I investigated the roads, um, and you know, again, went through a similar process, thinking maybe I'll just, uh, you know, answer a bunch, bunch of questions. But I ended up just answering one simple question, and as you'll see, you know, I, I tried to, you know, I worked with um, Grant, oops, Grant Gold, who was like a really talented designer, um, and. We worked, or we used. Uh, okay, good. Sorry. We tried to break up the text um, with with headlines, um, with with illustrations um, that were that are not quite graphics, um, but that are, you know, that are doing some of the work, that are telegraphing information, but that are also pleasing. Um, and so, you know, we played with, you know, using sort of these pull quotes um, just to help people find sort of ways in. Um, and, and, you know, so even if you just wanted to sort of scan it, you could just, you know, there were lots of chunky blocks of text that would offer, you know, a little bit of variety because it's, um, you know, it's road construction. I mean, how interesting is that? Turns out very interesting. So, um, but you can read all about it. Um, so then, you know, I, one of the hardest pieces was the power grid. Um, how often do you think about your electricity bill? Your, do you, what do you have, Con Ed here? No, national grid. An Eversource. An Eversource. How often do you think about your, uh, elect, your source of electricity? A lot. Oh, a lot? It goes out a lot. Oh, it goes out a lot. All right. Well, case in point, you really, it, infrastructure is a bit like love. You just don't know what you've got until it's gone. So, so this, we worked really hard to really just pare this down. Again, I got to work with Matt Ruby, and, you know, the, the goal was really just making something, you know, using very short, simple sentences. Oh, there's, these drawings are not very clear, but... Um, just trying to really break down the process in a way that didn't use flowery language, that unspooled the concepts very, very simply. And I worked with many experts who read behind me, including my dad, who worked for the Department of Energy for a while and has worked in engineering, um, just to make sure that this was accessible. And we got a great reader response um, that, you know, of people, one guy said, you know, you know, he's never going to think about, you know, flipping on the light switch in the morning the same way again. And that, to me, is a win. <laughs> um, but also, you know, professors said they were using it in their curriculum, but it was, it was, a, it was an exercise in restraint. Um, and this, this package really was about simplifying, and, and a lot of these stories are really about simplifying. Um, so, what's next? I'm just going to show you a few more examples, and then I'll open up for questions. Um, this is, has anyone seen the 360 videos? This was cool because I got to go um, escort the, the Queen Mary out of um, New York Harbor with the harbor pilots. Um, so, you know, the, the Times, I guess, is one of the only, or one of the first to, you know, really dive into 360 video and it's really cool because it it brings readers to a place that they wouldn't otherwise have access to like you know the cockpit of this you know um, uh, of the Queen Mary and then also climbing down the ladder you know like while a, another you know ship is sort of um, 
running alongside of it. So taking readers and giving them this sort of incredible experience, but also giving them control of their frame. Um, because you can drag the cursor and you can actually choose your own. So this is participatory. You are letting readers sort of you know, navigate their way in, in the story. Um, now, you know, the Times partnered with Samsung and you know, we've had one of these a day. Um, and so, you know, which we can talk about, it has, it has pluses and minuses of you know, introducing a new technology into the newsroom which really dictates you know, a demand for the story. So you know, I have mixed feelings about that. Happy to talk about that. Um, has anyone seen the AR stuff? It's really cool. Um, you know, the, the mobile phone is like the platform du jour. So this is the Times' augmented reality, one of their first, which um, essentially brought these um, Olympians into your uh, living room. So whereas 360 video takes you somewhere that you wouldn't normally go, AR actually meets you where you are and brings this experience to you. So, you know, this is, if you have a, you know, even a semi-recent iPhone, you can actually get this experience on your phone. You can just hold it up and, you know, this um, ice skater, I'm forgetting his name, Chen, will appear in your living room. Um, and then, or David Bowie. Um, this was the second one. And they're really working, I talked to Graham um, Roberts, who's like running this um, new department, and he said something I liked about thinking about the phone, right? It's like we used to think about it as like this, um, like a surface, right? And now they're thinking about it like a window, which actually I, I just really liked because so when you, so they, they used photogrammetry to, to take these very detailed pictures of the costumes that were going to be on display at the Brooklyn Museum and interspersed it uh, with, with text. So they're really trying to you know, create this augmented reality experience in the context of the story. So you don't have to like click away and you know, you, you, it, your experience of reading the story is interrupted. Um, um, and this is the last example. Does anyone read the Metropolitan Diary? Yay, Metropolitan Diary. So this is the Times' longest running user-generated column. It started in 1976 as a mailbag. Um, and in 2011, I, there were editors who were, again, not that enthusiastic about it because it was, it's time intensive. You know, people write in these stories. These are reader stories about moments that they, of, you know, over, that they overheard. Um, or like an interaction with the cab driver, or like you know, a, a, or like a, a missed connection, you know, or just like a. These are heartwarming stories. There's poetry, a lot of bad poetry, um, and so, you know, in, in 2011 or 2012, I can't remember. You know, I just realized that there was a huge opportunity here, um, and so I, I dragged it out and, and started producing it in another way, so that each. Um, each diary entry stood alone. We started adding metadata to it, um, and then you know, giving readers an actual byline, which is a big deal. In the olden days, when the when the column started, if your submission was accepted, um, the Times would send you a bottle of champagne. We're at, we don't do that anymore. Um, uh, but uh, so now you get you know you get the a byline and, and and sort of an entree into this sort of prestigious you know um, this canon of of you know New York, New York history um, and then allowed people to to comment on it. So so then I took decided to take it one step further, which was like AR 1.0, um, and I I my friend of mine at work, Chris Wiggins, who's the chief data scientist, connected me with Matt Condon, who is a super talented developer um, who helped, who created an app. Because I thought, well, wouldn't it be kind of cool if, you know, we were to create an app, you know, that surfaced, you know, or, or allowed people to search for all of these different diary entries. 
and you know to have them all in one place and you could search for you know stories that are like related to dogs or you know or, or that were just poems well or what if you were to you know have on your phone this app and it would know where you are now again there's some privacy issues here of course but um, it was location aware um, and it surfaced a diary entry um, that was near to you. And so, so this is, yeah, I'll just turn off the sound, but this was, this was essentially the way it worked. Um, now, this is not ever going to be a product. This is not like, you know, it's too, it's too niche, but, you know, it, it does sort of, I mean, really interest me in the, because you know I'm I'm very curious about what's next about you know location aware um, storytelling you know it there's a there there's a incredible um, opportunity here to you know interact and and also present information and that's what mostly excites me about AR is is you know this idea of like layering information and you know the Times has this like incredible archive. Um, you know, photos of articles, and I'm just imagining, you know, holding your phone up, you know, and if I could do that 50 Bowery story about that one building in New York City, you know, you could hold up your phone, and you could, you know, sort of see the history, you know, right then and there. Um, you know, it's, you know, there's, 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 there are, there are a lot of opportunities to, to be, you know, to, to discuss. You know, that Times has this incredible body of knowledge. You know, in terms of restaurant reviews, and in terms of its, you know, um, expertise in, in climate science, and so it's really exciting to think about, you know, what the Times will be doing next, um, and you know, it, there's a lot of thoughtful discussion about how technology can be used to, you know, enrich people's lives with information, and that is like that's where I see sort of AR and like my job or whatever I do next is is to, you know, and, and also to create this collaborative and this iterative process to to make the news.